Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Four manned space flights, and in total, those four U.S. astronauts had accrued less than 11 hours in space. But on that day in 1962, the president was publicizing his big dream, his big vision that by the end of the decade, the U.S. would land a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth. And everybody knew that that was a monumental endeavor. Everybody understood the gravity pun intended, everybody understood the significance of a dream that big. Thousands upon thousands of ideas would have to be hatched and engineering problems would have to be solved and people would have to be trained in order for that vision to be fulfilled. But President Kennedy addressed the difficulty head on and said, We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they're easy, but because they're hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept and one that we are unwilling to postpone. And so, despite the innumerable challenges and the enormous cost The United States space program focused all of its energies for the next seven years on fulfilling President Kennedy's big vision. And though he didn't live to see its fulfillment, there came a day in July 1969 when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed their lunar module and climbed down a ladder and stepped onto the surface of the moon. In fact, Armstrong's first words as he stepped onto the lunar surface have become one of the most recognizable quotes in history. You probably know it when he said, that's one small step for a man and one giant leap for mankind, right? Small steps. Small steps and big steps. You know, we talk around here a lot at Heritage about what it's like to be on a, what it means to be on a spiritual journey, to be traveling together, walking with God, following Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. We talk a lot about what it means to be on a journey, to be walking forward, and we frequently use the language of steps. In fact, we talk a lot about taking next steps in our faith journey. And here in our church family, in our church culture, we always try to make sure that the message is applicable to everyone in every stage of the spiritual life. It's important to us to remember and to recognize that there are people in our gatherings who may be checking out faith for the very first time, who might not be familiar 
with the Bible stories or with God's instruction or religious terminology. And so we try to explain things as we go so that, we, so that people don't walk away feeling more confused than when they arrived. But there are also people among us who are young in the faith. People who still feel young in the faith. And for those people, we try to make things clear and accessible so you don't have to be an accomplished Bible scholar in order to grasp what God might be calling you to do as a next step in your life. And we, even with all those groups, we, we also recognize that there are people in this gathering, people in this family, who have been on the journey with God for a long time. People who have spent time in the scriptures, people who have developed a prayer life and a contemplative life of their own, and we're always together trying to listen to God's instructions with open hearts and in community so that we can continually be shaped by, God, by God's heart. We remember that everybody is in a different stage on the spiritual journey and so we're always trying to say something that's beneficial, something that's accessible for everybody in the room and we also realize that everybody's spiritual journey is unique. Because your religious background and your learning style and your temperament and your life experiences, everything about you is unique to you and it influences your faith experience. The positive experiences in your past and also the negative experiences in your past. You carry all that stuff with you when you approach God in worship. And so everything about your spiritual journey is personal to you. But there are a few commonalities, a few themes that are universal about the walk of faith, about the journey of the spiritual life with God. Because even though your story is unique, the human condition affects us all and God's process for rescuing and restoring humans has a pattern to it. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look together at some of the steps, some of the major themes, some of the stages of walking with God. And of course, walking with God for a long time involves a lot of steps, right? That makes sense. But there are some noticeable milestones along the way. When you think about it, Neil Armstrong took a lot of steps on the surface of the moon, but before he did that, decades before he did that, he had to learn to walk on earth, right? He had to take first steps and learn to walk and talk before he could fly. And the spiritual life follows a similar pattern. And maybe, maybe, prayerfully, Maybe as we look together at the pattern of the spiritual life, maybe you'll get a better idea of what the next step in your spiritual journey ought to be. So this morning, I want to direct our attention to a couple of passages in the Old Testament book of Exodus. And if you've got a Bible with you, you're welcome to join us in that because we're going to be looking at a few different verses and even skipping our way through so that we can make it through the narrative. But if you find your way to the second book in the Bible, the Old Testament book of Exodus, 
there's this example, this narrative example of how God approaches the project of redeeming humans. Even if you haven't spent much time studying the Bible yourself, you may be familiar with the story of the Exodus because maybe you've seen popular movies like the old Cecil B. DeMille, the Ten Commandments movie, or maybe you saw Walt Disney's The Prince of Egypt when it came out 25 years ago or whatever that was. There are some memorable and miraculous scenes in this story. Moments when God displays divine power that baffles the imagination, but beneath those exciting miracle stories, underneath the stories of the plagues and the burning bush, there's a narrative that's being played out in the book of Exodus about God's initiating love. The book of Exodus begins with the people of Israel becoming slaves in Egypt. And the people of Israel were helpless. They were in bondage with no path to freedom. But God sees their suffering and remembers the promise that he made to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God, with his initiating love, chooses to intervene. He speaks to this shepherd named Moses chose Moses, chooses Moses to be his messenger to the people of Israel. Exodus chapter 6 and verse 6 records part of what God said to Moses. God said, go and say to the people of Israel, to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you to the land that I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. This is his promise and this is what God does. Over the next seven chapters of the book of Exodus, God sent Moses to confront Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and demand freedom for the people of Israel. And every time that Moses made that demand, Pharaoh refused. And every time, God would send a plague on the Egyptians that was specifically designed to prove his power over the false gods of the Egyptians. If Pharaoh and his people thought that the idol gods they worshiped could protect them, God was showing how powerless their gods really were. And so eventually, after the Egyptians suffered a great deal of frustration and suffering, Pharaoh agrees to let the people of Israel go. And one of the crucial points to understand, one of the crucial themes that you need to recognize in this story is that God frees the Israelites out of his own initiative and his own mercy. This is God's idea. This is God's movement. The people, people of Israel didn't do anything to earn or to accomplish their deliverance. It just happened. They experienced grace. They experienced unmerited favor. And then God leads them on this journey. They are released from 
Egyptian captivity, they start traveling as a large group out into the desert. And Exodus chapter 13 says that by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or by night. And there's a huge theme that's going on here. I hope you can see it. I hope you can recognize that God's goodness and provision in the story is God's initiative. That this is God's character on display in the way that God is guiding and protecting and providing for these people when they can't provide for themselves. This is God showing up, showing off. This is God arriving and being everything that these needy people needed him to be. And that's one of the themes of God's rescue plan for us. God's mighty power makes salvation possible, and God's mercy extends an invitation to receive that salvation. Let me say that again. God's mighty power, God's love and power make salvation possible, and then God's mercy extends an invitation to receive God's salvation. And we sing about this all the time. We talk about this all the time. So much of our worship is focused, so much of our worship is focused on these beautiful aspects of God's character. Every week we get together and we sing songs like the ones we just sang. Waymaker. Waymaker, you are the one who has created a way for us. You are the one who has opened the door for us. Miracle worker. Promise keeper, our song says. Every week we get together and we sing songs about the love and the grace of God because that is how God has revealed himself to us. We know that God has initiated relationship with us with unmerited favor, just like God did with the people of Israel long ago. But I want to show you, while we're in Exodus, I want to show you another important theme a universal theme in the spiritual journey with God. And that is that after God makes salvation possible, after God makes salvation available, he gives people an opportunity to trust it. He gives people an opportunity to step into that. He gives people an opportunity to lean forward. In Exodus chapter 14, God sets up just such an opportunity. Chapter 14, verse 1, this will be our, our main text, chapter 14 for the day. Verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, after they'd already begun to travel into the desert, into the wilderness, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and to encamp near the sea. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, will think, the Israelites are wandering around out, out there in the desert. They're wandering around the land in confusion. They're hemmed in. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. And God says, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so the Israelites did what they were told. They camped by the edge of the sea. 
And pretty soon, pretty soon, just as God had foretold, Pharaoh changed his mind again, wishing that he had a do-over, wishing that he could take back what he had said. He changed his mind about letting the people of Israel go, and he decided, I'm going to assemble my army and get all of my warriors mounted up and ready to go, and we're going to go, and we're going to bring the slaves back. After all, who's going to do the work in their absence, he thought. And so verse 9 says that all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen and troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea. Verse 10 says, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them and they were terrified and they cried out to the Lord as if in a panic. Verse 11 says, they spoke to Moses. The people spoke to the, the guy who had been God's messenger that had led them out to this place. And they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, didn't we tell you, leave us alone? Just let us serve the Egyptians. Let us stay here. At least we have homes. At least we have three meals a day. Didn't we tell you, leave us alone? It would have been better, the end of verse 12, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And this is the crucial moment of the story. This is the hinge point in the story because in this moment, the people of Israel have a decision to make. A decision about whether or not they're going to give in to fear and surrender to their pursuers and to go back to their previous way of life. They're probably not afraid that the Egyptians are going to come and hurt them. The Egyptians want them to come back and work for them. But they have a decision to make. Are we going to go back into what's familiar? Are we going to go back into what's known? Are we going to go back, even though the conditions were harsh and abusive, are we going to go back into that old part of our story? Or can we take the step to put our trust in God, even though we can't see how it will work out? Moses, he knows what he wants to do. Moses tells the people to sit tight. He tells the people to stand there and wait and see what God's going to do. Verse 13, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And that sounds like such good input, right? It sounds like such a faithful thing to say. I mean, Moses is really feeling spiritual courage. He's like, we're, just stand your ground. Just hang tight. Let's see what happens. And he's feeling confident in God's ability to save. But I want you to notice that God was inviting the people to something different. 
I want you to notice that God was inviting the people into a more tangible act of trust, a step of commitment. Verse 15 says, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Maybe your translation says, tell the Israelites to move forward. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. And I want you to notice... I want you to notice that the people were thinking, maybe we should go back. Maybe we should go back the way we came. Maybe we should go back with them. And Moses is saying, no, 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 let's stay right here. Let's stop right here. And we'll stand still and we'll wait and we'll see what God brings to bear, what God makes happen. But God says something different. God says, why, why are y'all talking about going back? Why are you thinking about standing still? God says, tell the people to move forward. Their fear had them thinking about retreating. Their fear had them thinking about surrendering. Their fear had them thinking about just accepting the life of bondage that they had known before. And Moses is telling the people, let's just stand still. He says, just wait. And let's see what God does. But God had arranged a perfect opportunity for the people of God to place their trust in God. And with the Egyptians behind them and the sea right there in front of them, God was inviting the people to move forward. It would be an act of faith. It would be a statement of commitment. It would be a no turning back kind of decision. And so God in his great mercy. The text doesn't say that this was what this was about, but I believe God gave them some time to think about it. God gave them some time. It says in verses 19 and 20 that God moved that pillar of cloud in between the Israelites and the Egyptians so that the Egyptians couldn't move forward. And in verse 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned the sea into dry land and the waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left and the Egyptians gave chase, but God disabled their chariots so that they couldn't catch up. I don't know if you know it or not, but Exodus and the rest of the Old Testament, these are not the only stories from the ancient Israelites that have survived from antiquity. The teachers and the elders of Israel passed down their stories generation to generation and the most important, notable collection of those stories outside of the Old Testament is called the Talmud. Jewish people still study the Talmud today. And in there you find the epic story of a, name, of a young man whose name I may butcher. I meant to ask Johnny Miles or Jeff Harris if they could help me pronounce this earlier, but... Uh, Nakshon ben Aminadav. 
you find the story of this young man. And according to the story, according to the legend passed down generation to generation by the Israelite elders from that day, when the Israelites were up against the shore of the sea and the, and the Egyptians were approaching from behind and they're looking out at the water, Nakshon ben Aminadav made the courageous decision to be the first one to step into the waves. He was the one who decided he was going to walk forward. Whether or not he could swim, the story doesn't say. But the story does say that he kept walking. You know the feeling when you've been to the beach and at first you're in up to your ankles and you keep moving forward and sometime around thigh deep you start to feel the force of the water pushing you. You start to feel like you have to be careful and watch your footing because this could get out of control. Nakshon ben Aminadav keeps walking out further and further into deeper and deeper water. And at some point, the water reaches the level of his chest, and the Talmud says that he kept walking forward. And at some point, the water reached the level of his nose, and he started to try to swim. And the story goes, the story that's been passed down generation to generation from that day, the story goes that as he was floundering out there in the water, surely about to drown and surely terrified, it was at that moment that the sea split and the dry ground came up to meet Nakshon ben Aminadav. And the beauty of that story is that Nakshon ben Aminadav had made his decision. He wasn't going back to Egypt. He wasn't going back with the soldiers. He wasn't returning to that former life. He knew the conditions that he had come from. He had seen enough of the power of God through the plagues, through the Passover, through the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, he had seen enough of the power of God to know what his choice was going to be. And so even when he didn't know how God was going to carry him, even though he didn't know exactly what the next stage might look like, he decided that he would rather entrust himself to God instead of trusting his own understanding. He would rather put his life in God's hands than to go and fight for his own way. He would rather walk forward into the unknown, into the water, than to stay on dry land and face what was behind him. It was a fork in the road moment. And when it came time to choose, Nakshon ben Aminadav chose to walk into the water with God. He had seen all he needed to see to be able to make 
his choice. I have another favorite story in the scripture. One that's buried. It's not one of the more well-known stories. It's the story of a Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. A story of a Roman citizen, probably somebody who was not, didn't have a Jewish background, certainly not a Christian background, maybe not a religious background at all, but he was a Roman citizen living in a Greek territory, and he had a job guarding a jail. And one night, that seemed like every other night, the jail was full of people, including two prisoners who had been brought in for disrupting the peace, two Christians, two disciples of Jesus. And as the night went on, these two disciples of Jesus who could have very understandably been at the lowest point in their lives, they were praying together and they were singing hymns about Jesus. I wish I knew the tune. I wish I knew the tune. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. They may have sung. Who, though he was just like God, he didn't utilize that to his own advantage, but he sacrificed. He made himself low. He came and he initiated contact with humans. I wish I knew the tune. But the story in Acts 16 goes that as the night went on and as they were praying together and singing those songs, suddenly there was a, a violent earthquake, the text says. I haven't been through very many earthquakes, the really small little ones that we have around North Texas. But it says in the story that this earthquake was so violent that it broke loose all of the chains that bound all of the prisoners in the jail. I assume that means that the walls were cracking and so the chains that were binding them to the walls fell off. And the Philippian jailer panicked. He panicked because he knew that if all of these prisoners escaped, it was going to be his head. It was going to be thought of as his fault. It was going to be his price to pay. And so he panicked. And in a moment of panic, he thought about ending it all. But these disciples of Jesus said, wait, 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 before you do something rash. He said, we're all still here. And Philippians, I'm sorry, Acts 16, the Philippian jailer, it says, Verse 29, the jailer called for lights to be brought in and he rushed in and he fell trembling before these two disciples of Jesus, Paul and Silas. And then he had them brought out and he asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What made him ask that question? What made him ask that question? Maybe it was the song that he heard. Maybe it was the joy in their voice that he could hear that he had never heard people express in the jail all of the previous nights. 
Maybe it was the peace with which those men had accepted their situation. Maybe it was the words to the song. Maybe he'd never heard that story before. I tend to think, I tend to think it was the miraculous event of this earthquake that suddenly frees everybody, the Christians and the non-Christians. The miraculous event of feeling the earth shake and he lived through it, but everybody was suddenly unchained from the walls and he sees this happen, watches it with his own eyes and then to find out that everybody had stuck around. He knew something was up, something was different and so he asks these two Christians, what must I do to be saved? He had seen something that he couldn't ignore. He had noticed something that he couldn't just push aside. In verse 31, these two disciples of Jesus replied to this pagan, Roman, Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Verse 32 says, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all of the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, right there in the middle of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds and immediately he and all of his household were baptized. Immediately, he and all of his household made a decision to step into the water to declare their trust in God. Immediately, he and all of the people in his household who most assuredly heard his story as soon as he walked in the door at home, he and all of the people of his household decided, we can't ignore what we've seen. We can't ignore what's happened. We can't ignore the initiating, merciful, gracious love of this God. We cannot ignore what's happened. And it would be foolish of us. It would be foolish of us to just go back to the way things used to be. It wouldn't make any sense. It would be illogical. It would be nonsensical for us to just return to business as usual when we've seen what we've seen. They said, we can't go back. And we can't stand still. We've got to move forward. We've got to walk into this future with God. And so, in response to God's initiating love, in response to God's gracious gift, in response to God's sacrificial favor, this Philippian pagan Roman jailer and all of his family said, we're going forward with God. And in the middle of the night, they went and they were dunked in water, immersed in water, a universal symbol, a universal act 
of commitment and identification. They were dunked in water. Seems like a small thing, like one small step for a person to take. But the truth is that the decision to not go back and the decision to not stand still The decision to walk forward with God is a giant leap of faith. A giant leap. And it changes everything. God's gift to you begins with the offer of salvation. God's gift to you begins with an initiating act of love on your behalf. God's gift to you begins with the unmerited event of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the resurrection for your sake. God's gift to you begins with the offer and the invitation to salvation and your life with God begins with one small step. And I wonder, I wonder if today's the day for you I wonder if like that young man whose story is recorded in the Talmud, if it's time for you to step into the water. We'd be ready today to help you in making that decision to say, I will not go back. I've been singing these songs. I've been hearing this story. I've been identifying with all of the goodness and all of the grace and all of the mercy that I love so much about God. I've been a part of this family. I've been a part of this movement, and I will not go back. Maybe today's the day. But I want to encourage you, too, that standing still, staying put, being idle, doesn't get it done either. That's not what the spiritual journey is about. It's not a spiritual arrival. It's a spiritual life, a spiritual walk with God. And while there are a thousand different steps and everybody's story is unique, there are a few steps that are universal, a few themes that are consistent, a few steps that every one of us takes as we identify ourselves with Jesus. And one of them is to say, I'm walking into that water with God. Y'all, I don't want us to keep having these conversations, these messages about next steps while we all just continue to stand still. Let's move forward together because this is what God has constantly been inviting us to do.